Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Hello, I'm David Temple, and welcome to The Thriller Zone, your front row seat to the best thriller writers in the world. A quick programming note. Do me a favor, would you, and swing by our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash David Temple Author, and be sure to subscribe. We'd love to see you there. Also, be sure to subscribe at any of the places you enjoy your podcast, Apple, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. Now, on today's 43rd episode, New York Times and international best-selling author J.D. Barker joins us to talk about his book, The Noise, co-written with the legendary James Patterson. Folks, this is a show chock full of useful information and outstanding stories. If you're a struggling writer who maybe wants to know how they can break through, stay tuned for some great insights. And if you're a fan of Patterson and Stephen King, get ready to hear some totally behind-the-scenes stuff you won't hear anywhere else. Right now, it's time to get into the Thriller Zone. Can you hear me okay? Yes, you sound delightful. I'm like looking at my screen looking for a, the unmute button, and I guess it's already already done. Yes, that's a hell of an office, dude. Thank you. Yeah, when I get locked up for things like COVID, I build bookcases. <laughs> like for real? Yeah, yeah. My, my dad's awesome. a contractor, so I, I grew up doing that kind of thing. I, I built a really cool two-story one in the other the other room with like a library ladder and all that kind of stuff on it. Um, and now now they're letting me back out of the house because I've run out of wall space. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, listen, I think this could be boy. If I if I fuck this up, I'll really be embarrassed. But this may be my first time that i've got a new york times and international bestseller on the show Uh oh so oh (laughs) i bow to you sir well i i appreciate it um that i told my wife when i got the new york times thing i was expecting music to start playing when i walked into the room or or something to change but no i still have to change diapers still have to wash the dishes like absolutely you know it's like when you when you first write, write that first book you expect you know like all these big benchmarks to happen and it's like it's it's very weird how they all kind of come about um my, my big thing now is like i, I hit uh, number two on the new york times bestseller list which is you know something you can't put on the the book jacket you know number two new york times bestseller just doesn't work very well <laughs> uh, i'm working really hard to try and hit that number one now yeah uh yeah uh, and people who say uh he's almost a new york times bestseller that it doesn't have quite the gravitas does it there's so much that goes on behind the scenes to, to make that happen you know like I, that particular book i wrote with james patterson which helped um yeah but you know there's you know they, they watch who's coming out on that particular week um you know whether it's, you know, you're up against a series whether you know it's other standalones you know the fiction list non-fiction list there's so many different things that they they weigh and publication dates get juggled around and um yeah it's it's, it's nutty like there's just so many different things and it, it's like a total perfect storm has to kind of happen to make it all work wow yeah i was talking i think it was meg gardner who said you you wouldn't believe everyone thinks oh new york times you just sell a hell of a lot of books and she said it's a it's like a whole science to how it happens oh yeah 
Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it definitely opened some doors, um, you know, and brought in a new audience and stuff, but it's, it's all very gradual. Like, I guess when I first started writing, like I, I, I've been in this industry for 20, he's 25, 26 years or something now. Um, but I worked behind the scenes as a, a book doctor and a ghostwriter for, for two decades. Um, so I knew a lot of people that were New York times bestsellers. And I actually had six different books that hit the list all with other people's names on the cover that I, that I had wrote or, or worked on. Um, so I was very familiar with the process. But, you know, it's, it's just like everything else, you know, like in, on TV and in the movies, you know, you see best-selling author and you just assume they've got this giant house that they're worth, you know, $200 million and this and that. And yeah, that's, that's not the case. No. <laughs> half, half my friends that, you know, that are also New York Times bestsellers are still working day jobs. It's a, it's a very weird dynamic. What? Now that, that surprises me. I, I, you know, maybe you hit a stroke of luck and you're, you, you're playing the right number on a certain day and all of a sudden you get that position. But I would have thought, uh, once you hit that and you maybe hit it twice or, you know, it's, it's a misnomer. I guess a lot of us think, well, sure it's prestigious, but I am printing cash, you know? <laughs> no, I mean, it's, again, it's like Meg said, it comes down to the science, um, but they're traditional booksellers or the publishers. Um, they, yeah, they, they kind of force everything to happen. Like when that first week of publication. So, you know, they try to get the biggest possible of pre-orders, you know, get you in as many bookstores and they pay for the, you know, those tables at the front of Barnes and Noble, all that kind of stuff happens in like the first or second week. And then they vanish. Um, you know, so you get this giant, like, if you look at the, the sales, chart you get this giant spike you know when that, that novel comes out um but then it you know it, it comes crashing back down again i mean because something as simple as like the tables at barnes and noble that cost twenty thousand dollars a week to be on that that new release table um last time i checked it's it's not a, a cheap thing um so you know everything is just geared towards that first week of publication so you get a nice payday um but then it tends to dwindle off and I, i'm in a very weird spot because i'm what they call a hybrid author i've got books with the traditional guys i've got some that i've uh, published through my own publishing company um i've got some that are a mix you know where the english rights i, I retained and published on my own, but we sold the foreign rights to Random House and all the, the typical, you know, usual players. Um, and I'm in, uh, I, I last count, 150 different countries and about 30 different languages. Um, so, you know, my last three or four books are a complete mix of that, you know, part part self-published, part traditionally published. Um, and, and that's, you know, I think really helped me because as an indie author, or, you know, when I'm basically in charge of my own publications, I don't necess necessarily shoot for that giant spike in sales at the beginning. It's more of a tortoise and hare kind of thing. I would rather right. see nice steady sales you know over years and years than having that that big spike um so for me it, it all it all balanced out really well man i'm still i'm i'm stunned from the twenty thousand dollars a week for the table i mean that's yeah that that entry the entryway right before you know after those doors is even more more pricey you know, the whole alcove that they've got there. Um, a lot of people don't realize that you know every everything is bought and paid for in, in today's world mm. Well, J.D., I know you've got uh, I'll run this down real fast because it'll be great uh, uh, video visual later. Four MK thrillers, three standalone novels, one Shadow Cove saga and three with the one and only James Patterson. The latest with Mr. Patterson is The Noise, which we'll be chatting about today. But uh, I'm just going to put this out there because I'm uh, a little bit of a fanboy of both you and uh, J.P. And. He is one of those guys that I grew up. I, I think he is instrumental. He doesn't know this yet, but I'll tell him that 
he's the guy when I started really thinking, you know what, I really want to craft my third uh, chapter of life and it's going to be a full-time writer. And when I, I was just reading everything he was printing, I thought, this cat is a machine. Uh, and it's all riveting. It's great for flying across country because you can blow through a book uh, in a sitting. But I got to know, man, how did that connection with you happen on this book, The Noise, which we're going to get to, which is, whoa. Um, how did that happen? What's that feel like? I've had a lot of weirdness in, in my career. Um, so with the first book that I wrote, Forsaken, um, I, I, you know, in order, it, you've written a novel. So like, it's all about getting that last page down on paper. And, and part of the storyline, I had to explain where the wife buys a journal. Um, and just to get the book finished, I wrote that she walked into Needful Things, you know, Stephen King's store and, and bought it there and fully expected to have to do a, you know, a find, replace and change that to some other name before we hit publication. Uh, but my wife is, is way smarter than me when it comes to certain business things. She's, you know, read the book and she's like, no, don't change it. Let's get King's permission to use it. Um, and, you know, long story short, he, he read the manuscript and he, he gave me his blessing to go ahead and use that reference. Um, so I, it, I, I've captured lightning in a bottle a couple of times. Um, Bram Stoker's family read that book, asked me to write a prequel to Dracula using Bram's original notes, which was another one. Um, while all that was going on, I was writing the, the 4MK series. And, you know, one of the things you do in this industry is you try to get blurbs, you know, those little one sentence descriptions that you throw on your book cover. You know, this yes. famous author said this about your book. And it's, you know, usually something really, really riveting. Um, so I mailed out a lot of copies of, of uh, Fourth Monkey um, before it was coming out. And, and one of the people that I sent it to was was Patterson. Um, never expected to hear back from the guy because, you know, the publishers mail out a gazillion of these. I, I probably drop at least 20 to 50 of them into the mail uh, to people that I know. But, you know, like I'm, I'm looking at my own to be read pile on my desk or my table over there. And it's, you know, it's as tall as I am. So I can just imagine how many books, you know, people like King and Patterson and these guys are getting. Um, but I never expected it to go anywhere. So I, I was working on, I think, the second or third book in that series and my phone rang and it was a 412 area code um, which I know is Florida because I used to live in Florida um, so I, I picked it up and, and you know the, this voice comes on he's like hey it's Jim Patterson you got a second I'm like yeah sure it is it's one of my buddies pranking me um, so I'm sitting there trying to figure out which one it is and, and meanwhile he starts talking and he starts giving me his review of, of the fourth monkey and he got about 20 seconds in and I'm like holy crap this might really be him uh, so turned out it was um, and we, we talked quite a bit um, then next, the, when I was in Florida next, I guess about a month or two later, um, he invited me to his house and invited me out to lunch. Um, and I, you know, I got to, got to meet him, got to talk to him. Um, and we started brainstorming ideas for a, a book together. Um, but we kind of ran into a wall because I'm what they call a pantser. You know, I basically come up with my, my, you know, idea for the book, my plot, you know, just a general yep. idea. Um, then I create all my characters. I make them as real as they possibly can be. And I just sort of drop them in this scenario and just kind of document what I see happening to those people. Um, but I have no idea how the book is going to end when I start writing it. Now, Patterson, on the other hand, he's a you know very stringent outliner. Oh, yeah. um, but like the idea of pantsing a novel like that, like that's unheard of in his world. He wants a total framework. He wants to know what that last page is going to say before you start the first one. Um, you know, so we had that lunch. It was a great conversation. But, you know, I don't think either of us actually expected it to go anywhere because our writing styles were so different. Um, then about a month or two later, I, I got another call from him. And he's, you know, I, and he's like, you know what, let's try one you know, without an outline. 
Um, so we did that. I was actually the, the first guy to, to talk Patterson into writing a book without an outline. Um, and we had a ball. It's, it's called the Coast to Coast Murders. Um, and we just went back and forth chapter by chapter. And, and we tried to one up each other. And that was probably the, the funnest part about it. Um, to give you an example, there's, there's a scene in the book that you know had to happen. And you've seen it in every movie. So our, our protagonist got arrested for a crime. He's in the interrogation room with his lawyer on one side and the police on the other. Um, the police leave him alone with his lawyer for a couple minutes and they talk. Um, and it, it had to happen because it communicates certain information that's necessary for the story. So I just wrote that scene and sent it off to him. Um, and he sent it back and he's like, no, try something like this at the end. So I read it and like he wrote at the very end of the scene, he's got the, the our, our protagonist attorney stands up, knocks on the door. And when the cop opens the door to let him out, the attorney grabs him by the shirt collar, bashes his head against the wall, kills him and turns to our client and, and says, all right, let's go. And like, that's how Patterson handed the chapter back to me. He's like, okay, now your turn. Um, so then I wrote the next one, painted him into what I thought was an even more difficult corner. And it took him all of like 20 minutes to, to write his way out of that and give me a, an even crazier one. So we spent this entire novel just going back and forth, trying to one up each other. Um, and we ended up with this twisty and insanely cool, you know, psychological thriller. Um, so when we finished that one, you know, a little time went by and, and you know, we started talking again. We we're trying to come up with an idea for something to do. And he sent me the outline for the noise. Um, and he said, all right, we tried it your way. I want you to try it my way. Um, you know, so I, I read this outline and I was I was hooked from the first page because he came up with a, a twist on horror that had never been done before. Um, and on top of that, he had never written a horror novel before. Um, so like the idea of working on that with them, you know, like there, there was no way I could pass it up. Um, and he, he, you know, he actually actually taught me quite a bit because, you know, when you write books as a pantser, you know, a lot of stuff ends up on the cutting room floor. You know, you, you basically have to, you, know, you write this giant story. I usually end up around 120 to 140,000 words. Then I take out a good 30 or 40,000, kind of trim the fat and get to the meat of the story. Um, when you work with an outline like that, you really don't have that process. You know how the story is going, the framework is there, and it, it's tight. Um, you know, so that's basically what I learned on, on that second one. So I'm having a ball working with the guy where, you know, he's, he's teaching me an insane amount of stuff. Okay. If, first of all, let me catch my breath because <laughs> this is... Funny. Sorry. <laughs> no, let me catch my my mental breath because this is one of the best fucking stories I've heard on the show yet because you know just let, let me be a fanboy for a second you got you who you're an impeccable writer you, you, you've definitely mastered the craft and if you said you've been it in 20 years then I can only guess you've been you know you got right out of grade school and started so that's number one insert compliments here number two you got you got friggin Jim Patterson, who is probably between he and Stephen King, the two most prolific writers is uh, my brain can handle right this minute in this day and now. Uh, so you have you have one degree of separation from both of them. Next, you stole my one of my questions. I had the great little setup, but you 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 stole it beautifully. So I don't have to worry about that. But the legendary uh, Stephen King, the the balls, the tenacity, the um confidence that you had to go hey look i live by this motto they can only say no whoop keep going right so you took that to the next level and i'm thinking of a couple of writers that i've had on the show who are who have said to me oh my gosh i don't know if i should try that because i'm not sure that will work and i'm like what the hell just do it all they can do is say no so that's another one in my as I'm catching my breath is like that that's one of the greatest lessons that I think some of my listeners can take away is that uh, fear 
that's false evidence appearing real. So just ask. And if they say no, you know, keep moving on. Uh, so there, that's, oh, what a great story. I mean, I, yeah. Well, that's, that's totally true. I, I mentor a lot of writers and you know, I, I host a podcast of my own. Um, and we talk about this all the time, you know, like a lot of times, especially in this industry, you only get one opportunity to, you know, to ask a question. You know, like if you go to Thriller Fest, you may end up in the elevator with Lee Child, you know, for all of 15 seconds as you try to doors. Are, are you going to talk to the guy and get to know him? Or are you going to keep your mouth shut, watch the doors open and watch him walk away and, and you know, wonder what if? Um, yeah, I, I've never been afraid of, of asking the question because, like you said, the worst thing that can happen is they're going to say no. Um, that, that being said, I, I hopped in the car and tried to go to Stephen King's house to, to get that permission. Um, don't do that. <laughs> um, we, we never actually made it. Um, I, I called a friend of mine, told him what we were up to, and he said, oh, no, don't do that. Here's Steve's email address. Just send it to him. If, if he likes the book, you'll hear back. If the book sucks, you know, just he'll probably you, know, you won't hear from the guy, but just leave him alone. Don't don't go to his house. He hates that. Um, and I've been on the receiving side of that since then. We've, we've had a couple of fans that have just kind of shown up on my doorstep. And honestly, it's a little scary. Sure. <laughs> I, I had one who, you know, him and his wife, I, I was out on the back porch. My daughter was playing on the swing set and they just walked around at the back of my house. And, you know, they, they were standing on my back deck while I was reading a book before I even realized they were on the property. Um, so I, it's weird how that's, you know, like prior to that type of experience, you know, it felt totally natural for me to just hop in the car and go to go to somebody's house like that. Nowadays, I, I've never even consider it. You know, uh, I came from the part of the country that if you're standing out in your backyard and somebody walks in your property, it's you're going to have a gun in your hand. You're going to say you need to leave or I'm going to shoot you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> if, if my gun had been close at hand, that, that may have been the case. I'm, I'm in New Hampshire. You can get away with a lot of stuff up here. Yeah. By the way, quick question. Uh, and I got to listen to it. What's the name of your podcast? Uh, it's called Writers, Inc. Um, it's oh, called OK. Yeah, we're having a lot of fun. I mean, because I've got a lot of contacts in the industry, um, so we don't get the typical guests. Um, I mean, we we literally just booked Gillian Flynn. Um, we had Nicholas Sparks on a couple of weeks ago. Um, so that's kind of the caliber of, of you know writer that we have on. Um, but we ask them a lot of the same questions. We ask them where they started. You know, what were they doing before they you know started writing full time? You know, what is their writing process like? What did they do to get an agent? Um, you know, but we're asking the you know the, the names that you see on your your bookshelves. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, to, to hear from, you know, some of these people, I mean, they all started, you know, Stephen King wrote Carrie, you know, sitting between a washer and dryer on one of those little children's student desks. Um, Dan Brown lives right down the street from me. I mean, he wrote Da Vinci Code, you know, it, it, you know, before anybody knew who he was, you know, Patterson, you know, him too. Like he, he wrote a book called, um, the Thomas Berryman number. Um, oh yeah. Very few people have ever heard of that book um, because it fizzled and died. Um, but at the time, he was working in advertising. He'd been around in, in marketing forever um, before along came a spider head. And the only reason that book worked is because he went out of his own pocket and filmed a television spot for it. Um, hardcover came out. It didn't really sell that well. And he spent 500 bucks of his own money and filmed a TV spot. And that's what really sparked the sales. Um, you know, so like getting that type of information out of some of these these big names like that to me is gold. You know, as, as, as an aspiring author, you know, somebody that's somewhere in the mix in the in the industry right now, just just knowing how other people got there, you know, it's huge. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, my first career was radio, and I, I knew from being a child that I wanted to do it. And I got to hit five of the top markets, all number one shows uh, in their genre. And then uh, I've done television and film. And, and everyone that hears these stories, uh, I'm not tooting my horn, I'm sharing a story, is that everyone thinks it's insurmountable. 
And when you stop and you go, I really want to do this and I want to do it for the right reasons. It's not about the money. It's not about the prestige. It's not about the ego. I just, I want to, I want to do it. I want to be creative and I want to see if I've got what it takes. And if you have that in your mindset, I believe you can achieve anything. And yet sometimes we look at authors like musicians and artists and uh, actors and so forth and put them on this pedestal that they may or may not really deserve. And you made a really good point. You would go back and ask any of these cats, you know, uh, do you feel, well, you'd never put it this way, but do you feel better than the next guy or do you think you're hot shit, et cetera? And they'd go, no, I, I just followed my dream and I kept doing it until somebody said yes. And uh, another great little morsel I'm going to take away from this show, J.D., well, I, I worked, um, I don't know how much of my backstory, you know, but, but when I was in college, I worked for RCA Records. I was a, basically a glorified babysitter. Um, but when a recording artist come into the South Florida area, I had to pick them up at the airport, get them to the radio station, get them to their hotel, get them to their concert on time, get them back on an airplane when it was time to leave. And one of the people that I, I did that for a couple of times was Madonna. Um, and she told me um, that we had a couple of really good conversations, but she told me that she tended to zig instead of zag. Like that was her, her mentality. So when she had an album coming out, she would make a list of what everybody else was doing to promote their albums. And once she had that list, she would create a second list of things nobody was doing. And that's what she tended to focus on. Um, so that you know has always stuck with me. And one of the other things she told me is when she um, first decided she wanted to be a, you know, a singer or get into that profession, she hopped on the bus and went to New York and got off the bus with like $10 in her pocket. Like there, there was no plan B. Um, and a lot of times it takes, you know, your feet to the coal in order to, to do that. I mean, even in my own case, like I was working a corporate job. You know, my parents told me from the, from the start, you couldn't make a living as a writer. Um, so I, I have two and a half degrees. And I, my last real job, I was a chief compliance officer for a brokerage firm, um, which is as horrible as it sounds, but it paid really good. <laughs> my wife and I had all the trappings of that. We had a big old house, we had cars, we had a boat. Um, yeah, our monthly nut was somewhere between ten and $12,000. So we couldn't just walk away from that. So my wife came up with this crazy plan. She said, let's sell everything that we own. Let's buy a duplex in Pittsburgh because she had family there. Rent one side out, live in the other side, and then you know live off of savings and try to make this writing thing work. We got everything down to nothing. I remember the day she showed me the bank statement. She said, it looks like you got about 18 months to make it happen. Go. You know, it, it did. I mean, my life literally changed in, in one day. Um, you know, it, over the course of a couple of hours, like, I got a phone call from my agent when she was pushing the fourth monkey. Um, she had told me that we got a preemptive offer out of the UK for, I believe it was 100 $40,000. Um, I ran home, told my wife we we're going out to dinner. By the time we got to the restaurant, we were up near 600,000. Um, and we had broken seven figures by the time we, we finished dessert and left. So my, my life literally changed within the course of about four hours or so, all because I just, you know, I wouldn't give up. My wife wouldn't give up. And, you know, we just never took no. That soundbite is going to be in my top 10 best hits uh, of the year. Um, what was what was that magical moment and uh, that magical ignition switch? Was it that sounds like part of it, that tenacity and just, you know, I'm not listen, I'm not taking anything away from being able to write a good story. So don't don't mistake that. But and I, I was going to say was James uh, and or Stephen were, were one of those two uh, gentlemen part of that magical ignition switch. However, uh, that the fourth monkey that came that was prior to both of them, wasn't it? 
Yeah, well, Forsaken, um, I, I got a little cocky with that book because I knew how to write a good story. And, and you hit the nail on the head there. Like, you have to be able to write a five-star book for any of this stuff to happen. Um, everything else is just, you know, lining up the basically perfect storm of events. But I knew Forsaken was a five-star read. Um, and I knew that, I, you know, when I had King's permission to use the, that reference, I thought it was a, a slam dunk. Um, so I, I sent out, I think, 200 query letters to agents because I didn't have one at the time. Um, I used a form letter, which was a bad idea. You don't use a form letter when you're reaching out to agents. Um, so surprise, I didn't get a whole lot of responses back. And I, I didn't understand why, because I didn't realize using a form letter was a problem. Um, so I ended up uh, indie, publish, indie publishing that novel. Um, but I, at the time, like I made a conscious decision. I said, okay, if I'm going to do this, it's going to have to be on par with something coming out of Random House. I'm not going to just you know hit the publish button on Amazon and walk away and see what happens. Um, so I hired professionals across the board, editors, cover designers, formatters, um, and we released, you know, exactly like a random house book would. The hardcover and audio book came out the same day along with a soft cover. Mass market paperback came out six months later. Um, you know, I basically lined everything up the way I saw the big guys doing it. Um, Somewhere along the way, Publishers Weekly got wind of my, my failed trip to Stephen King's house. And, you know, I never actually got there, but the fact that I got his permission was was newsworthy to them. Um, so they wrote up a story about it. And that's honestly what kindled my career. That that story came out. You know, Forsaken ended up on the radar of a lot of people. You know, libraries started picking it up. Bookstores started ordering it. Um, it it's over a quarter million copies sold at this point. Um, so when I, you know, and that's, I, I was over 200,000 when Fourth Monkey was, was basically finished. Um, and I, I seriously consider just self-publishing that again because the, the economics are so good. Um, but with that kind of track record behind me, you know, I was able to go to the publishers and basically use those numbers. You know, like, this is what I did as an indie. What do you think I can do on your platform kind of thing? Um, and, and that's what really garnered, you know, the, a lot of the, the you know, the, the advances and things that I got in the film and TV interest. Couple things real quick here. Uh, I love the fact that you took the formula of the method of the big guys and simply duplicated it because I don't know a whole lot of, let's see, I think my second self-published book, I did do a hard back copy, which was ridiculous at the time because I'm not sure I had enough heat on the first one and the second one wasn't as good as the first one. So I really screwed the pooch on that. But um, that, that amazes me. And how did you have... Well, it seems like a silly question to say, how did you have the foresight to do that? Except that's just really good business. Find out how they're doing it. And if you've got the capital, that's the key, then duplicate the process. Yeah, I mean, it's honestly, it wasn't cheap. Um, you know, they took a big chunk of that savings in order to make that happen. Um, but yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter what I'm doing industry, industry wise. You know, if I, if I wanted to make a bicycle today, I would go out there and look to see what the best bicycle on the market was. And that would be my competition. That that's the bar that I would shoot for. Um, so that that's kind of how I, I, I approach that. I did not know that you were what some would call perhaps a hybrid thriller. And I think you mentioned that earlier about a, a writer in that you write suspense thrillers and you, 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 you fold in horror and crime and science fiction and even supernatural like a good dollop of that is in the noise all of that i dig how did you come up with that concoction was it something uh, generic or rather uh, organic like you being a pantser to be able to combine all those genres and just make it work seamlessly into this tapestry 
Honestly, it, it, you know, it was the same thing as, you know, looking at Random House to figure out what their model was. I, I looked at who was selling the most number of books. Um, and these, these are names that, that we all know. There's Stephen King, there's Dean Koontz, there's James Patterson. Um, it, you know, you can pick up a Stephen King book and it could be a Western for all you know. It could be a romance novel for all you know. People are buying it because it has his name on the cover. And, you know, it's guaranteed to be a good story because he's done it so many times in the past. Um, so that was essentially what I was shooting for. So that's kind of a problem in today's world in publishing, because if you go to an agent and say, I'm not going to stick to a specific genre, or you try to tell a publisher that, they, they get a little little freaked out. Um, they want to be able to put you in a box from the get-go. An agent wants to be able to say he's a thriller author. You know, The editor wants to be able to go to the marketing people and say, this is my new thriller author. You know, Those marketing people want to be able to go to the bookstores and say, this guy needs to be in your thriller section. Um, I, I didn't want to do that. Um, so if you look at my, my public I'm purposely bouncing back and forth between horror and thriller, horror and thriller. Um, My Wikipedia page specifically says that I'm a suspense author because that was my common thread between all of them. Um, And I I tend to include, you know, touches of science fiction of this and of that. Um, So I'm basically trying to paint that picture from the get go. Um, And a lot of that came out of conversations that I had with some of these these authors, um, you know, and just research. Like if you look at James Patterson, yeah, he hit extremely big with Along Came a Spider. And then he had four or five books, you know, very similar in, in theme, um, you know, about cops chasing a serial killer. Then he wrote a book called uh, When the Wind Blows about a girl with wings. Um, that didn't go over too well with his fan base because they were expecting another serial killer novel. Right. Um, so I figured that if I keep bouncing back and forth, picking up fans as I go, you know, they're all going to be on board for whatever I do as long as I don't do something specific over and over and over again, which as an author, I don't want to do. I don't want to get trapped writing that same same novel, you know, over and over again. And I, I really don't care if that's the better payday. I, I, I need to enjoy what I'm doing. I need to enjoy that story that I'm telling. That's an exceptional piece of advice. Uh, a lot of people are t- like I went to Thriller Fest back in 19 and you would hear a lot of the speakers talk about, you know, find that niche and then lock it in. And uh, while some of that I agree, like you make the point about uh, a great income, steady income. But mm, there's a big piece of me like yourself that if I thought I was going to have to write the same thing, just a new location, I, I'm not sure I could put my heart into it because of my I, I don't know if it's <laughs> I don't know if it's either a, 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 an attention span that uh, leans more on the short side or uh, I don't know. It's kind of like there's we only have so much time on this planet. So and there's so many things I want to do. I'm sh- I got to believe you're the same way. Yeah. And, and the, the funny thing is, you know, like I think my, my agents definitely come around um, and I think editors are, are finally starting to see that it, it does work, that you can you can do this. Um, so we're having very different conversations. Like I know right now my core audience is female 45 and over. So my next book, I purposely didn't write a book geared towards female 45 and over. I wrote a book geared towards young adult. I'm, I'm shooting for you know late teens, early 20s. Um, yeah, my, my agent says I'm like a literary Pied Piper. Like I'm just sort of going out to these different groups because, it, you know, if I write a sci-fi novel, I'm grabbing those people and I'm bringing them into my fold and they're reading the next one. And they're, you know, I'm, I'm able to prove to the editors and publishers that, you know, people will bounce from genre to genre for a specific author. Um, so I'm basically, you know, building that formula. And, you know, with each book, it gets easier and easier. They're, they're all kind of folding in. Now, I, I realize you've, J.D., I, I realize you've been able to enjoy a great success with this. But it, it's such a refreshing, so refreshing to hear some cat who's really made it happen and uh, are saying, I'm going to forge my own path and have the confidence to do that. 
period. New paragraph. Uh, quick question, because I, I was looking at your website, which is pretty beautiful. And who does you do, do you have the same artists that do all your covers? Uh, the last few I've been using a guy named Stuart Bache out of the UK. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He, he does uh, Mark Dawson's covers. Um, he's done a couple of Stephen King covers in the past. Um, re- really good guy for that. One of my big recommendations that I, I tend to throw out there is, is there's a website called 99 designs, uh-huh. um, which I absolutely love. You pay around three or $400. You throw your blurb, you know, your tagline and stuff like that, your description of your book out there and artists will create covers for you and you'll get like 40 or 50 totally different designs, um, which is a very good way to try and, you know, figure out what you want that cover to be because I, I suck at, at graphic design. I've got no clue what's good. You know, the stuff that I like tends to be stuff that other people, you know, do not like. Um, so like we have Forsaken, when I did that cover, you know, I, I had 10 different covers that, you know, came up through, um, 99 designs um i put them out on twitter and said if you were to walk into a bookstore and buy a book based solely on its cover which one would you pick um the one that's on the cover is the one that yeah i think it got 86 percent of the votes um it wasn't my favorite but that was you know my my thinking um traditionally you don't really get a choice you know they kind of create the cover they put it in front of you and you know it's it's different in every country so i've kind of given up that fight well forsaken is an attention getter and you may have seen a variation on a theme but i'm looking at it right now i'm like yeah i'd read that just based upon the cover which is really hard to do now side note before i knew you but before i knew i could get you on the show i picked up a caller's game because of my background and this is one of those books that you 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 open the page one and this is a this is a craft in and of itself and i uh i was jumping on a in a cab to go somewhere i couldn't even stop i was five chapters in before before i could stop because it is a continual scene which is brilliant um so kudos to that and i uh, i have yet to completely finish it but it's great let's now talk about the noise which is your latest book and it and i hope this is a compliment jd because it 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 felt like i was watching an m night uh, Shyamalan film well he's he's definitely an inspiration to me um it if, when, when I write any of these, I, 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 it's weird, but I kind of see it in my head as a movie sure. and I'm just sort of documenting what I'm seeing. Like when, when everything's working, when you know, the machine's firing on all cylinders, that's what it's like. I'm watching it play out. I'm just documenting it. And when I look up, I've got six, 7,000 words down on paper and I don't know how the hell that even happened. Um, <laughs> The noise was very much like that, um, you know, when and when you work with somebody like Patterson, like I, you know, he, he calls quite a bit. Um, and even when he's not on the phone, every time I type a sentence, I can kind of feel him standing over my shoulder, snapping his fingers going, OK, is that moving the story along? Is that moving it fast enough? You know, what's the point of that? If it doesn't have a point, it shouldn't be there. You know, like this and, and you know, like that kind of thing just kind of it gets drilled into your head. Um, you know, so like the, the noise, you know, definitely has that caller's game. You know, I was coming off the noise when I when I wrote that, um, you know, so it's it, it, it kind of gets ingrained in there. Well, it's funny. I, t- uh, as I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, I took his uh, uh, online course, the uh, master's course. And uh, I think I learned more in that one course than I had learned a couple of years before. And you just mentioned two great takeaways that I, I learned from him and I've integrated ever since. If it doesn't move the story forward, I mean, if a sentence doesn't move the f- story forward, much less a paragraph, take it out. The other is um, 
uh, I love this. Uh, I call it, who, who called it? I want to say there's a, I'm thinking of, um, bear with me one second, Blake Snyder, uh, Save the Cat. Um, I think it was called the oh shit moment. So you'd have a, uh-oh, oh shit, da-da-da, uh-oh, oh shit, right? And James says something similarly in that you gotta you got to raise the stake and then the, just when you think, uh, kind of like the example that you gave earlier, just when you think, okay, well, he's walking out the door, opens the door, punches him, kills him, <laughs> opens the door, something happens. Now, I'd love to know what you did next on that, but that that you have to constantly keep escalating. And that's the magic of him making you turn those pages. Yeah. And that's, you know, the more I do, you know, it's, it's becoming ingrained in myself too. Like, you know, most, most writers, I, I think tend to take the easy way out. Um, you know, they see their character doing something, it makes sense for them to go off and do whatever that thing is. So they, they write it out and that's the way that it happens. The problem is the reader sees the exact same thing. You know, if, if, if the, you know, if your protagonist is expected to hop in a car and the car is supposed to start, and he's supposed to drive off into the sunset and that's what happens. It's boring, yeah. you know? So like, instead, you have him hop in the car and it doesn't start or you know he, he tries to key on the lock and it doesn't work or you know this you know crater opens up in front of him but some, something strange has to happen um so anytime you know i find myself writing a scene where it just feels like i'm just moving a little too far on the straight and arrow you know i purposely yank the you know the storyline in a different direction just to see where it goes and you know sometimes i'll do that two three four ten times you know it doesn't really matter until i find one that that fits and that that seems to work um you know it's funny because i, I run five miles a day and i I live on a little island off the coast of New Hampshire, so I see a lot of the same faces as I go. Um, and, and they see me kind of mumbling to myself and, you know, pretty much pulling my hair out. And it's essentially because I'm trying to figure out how to get out of whatever I just put myself in, you know, the next day when I sit down at my, my computer. Um, but that's what keeps it fun. You know, as long as I keep pushing myself like that, I know the readers are going to be entertained, too. And speaking of pulling your hair out, you do win the award for having the best head of hair on our show since we began. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so to go back to the noise, make sure I hit this point so that I don't give too much away, except the fact that folks, you're going to want to read this because it's a hell of a ride. Can you share uh, the inspiration of the story and kind of, now you said that James kind of did the outline on it. So, but, but I know that you, even with a, an outline being handed to you from a master, something had to ignite, uh, in you that helped you propel it and move it along so quickly. And so let's talk about that story. Um, well, you know, there's an NDA with Jim that's about 10 inches thick. So there's only so much I can say as far as process. Copy um, that. He provided an incredible framework with, with that outline. Um, you know, like I said, I, I read it and, you know, like he, he had touched on a, a, a topic in horror that had just never been done before, which is insane because everything has been done before. Um, but he just he found an angle that was was fresh. Um, so that in itself was inspiring. Um, I tend to ask what if a lot um, as I'm going, you know, like, what if this happened? What if that happened? Um, one of the things that he gave me a hard time about is, you know, his outlines come with chapter numbers. And, you know, usually I'm about three chapters chapters into the book before, you know, I've got extra chapters or this is happening or I've moved something around. Um, but, you know, that's kind of the magic of it. Like nothing is carved in stone. Um, and, when, you know, when you're working with somebody like that, he understands when you're going in the right direction. He's, you know, purpose, you know, he'll, he'll back off and just let you let you run. Um, at the same time, he'll stop you and hit the brakes if he sees you going off into the weeds, um, which, which is good, too. So, you know, you, you said you took the master class. So, you know, a lot in a lot of ways, it feels like I'm still taking that class, except for Jim calls and tells me every time I screw up. 
you've got the professor in your back pocket, so to speak. Yeah, sort of. I think it was a 60 minutes uh, episode that I saw on James and you got to go into his Florida home and his library alone and his racks of files. It seems if I recall, it's been a, been a while, but it seems as though he has any number of stories with any number of writers going simultaneously, right? He, he does. And it was one of the first things that grabbed me because his, his office is upstairs. And as we went up the staircase, there were manuscripts on the steps as, as we were going up. Um, and every shelf in his office had something going on. But like he knows where every one of those stories is. He's weighing in on every single one. He's writing on every single one. Um, you know, I honestly, when I first talked to him, I, I kind of figured that the process would work very similar to some of the, the ghost book uh, writing books that I've done in the past. You know, somebody gives you a particular plot and they say, okay, go ahead and write the book and get it back to me. I'll talk to you in six months. Um, it's not like that. He's, he's extremely hands-on. He was involved in every aspect of everything I've worked on with him. Um, now, I, I can't attest to other writers. I don't know what his process is with other people. Um, but, you know, he's, he's involved from page one to the, you know, until you type the end of, you know, of, of everything that I've worked on. Um, and that's been refreshing. Yeah. And let's make sure I keep it about you. And that is this. So, you, you know, between your Shadow Cove saga, the James Patterson stories, your Dracula stories, the uh, Forum K thrillers, uh, do you, I'm just curious, do, what is next for you? Are you going to bend another genre? Are you going to? Are you going to add an extra thread of uh, genre to your repertoire? Um, you know, I, it's my agents bugging me about that all the time, too. Um, so normally when I write a new book, I've, I've got a, a PDF document that has ideas for stories that I want to write. Um, so I share that with my agent. She shares it with my editors and they kind of go through it and go, OK, this is something that would probably work really well a year and a half from now, because that's roughly when it's going to come out or, you know, when I turn it in. Um, so that's kind of how it works. I'm, I'm writing books on spec. They pick an idea and, and then, you know, I'm, I'm told what to write next. Um, that being said, I mean, I, I'm still, you know, trying to explore new things. Um, you know, I wrote a, a book called She Has a Broken Thing Where Her Heart Should Be, um, which is very similar to like, a, you know, like if Dean Koontz were to rewrite Great Expectations, I guess would be the simplest way to, to explain that one. Um, and in a lot of ways, I, I needed to write something that was a little lighter, a little bit more refreshing after writing the, the 4MK serial killer thrillers, um, because I just kind of needed to scrub my brain out a little bit and you know, get, get that stuff out of my head. Um, now that I'm removed from that, like I'm kind of eyeing those books and I'm going, you know, I've got a couple ideas to keep that storyline going um so I'm, I'm considering you know jumping back into that world um i've also got a, a haunted house uh, type story that's going to be coming out um, probably in the next year or so um that's you know what i'd like to think is an original take on on that particular model as well so you know if you look at 4mk you know the, the reason that book did so well is my serial killer dies in the opening of the book you know it's, it's no surprise like he's, he's been operating in chicago for five years um his signature is he kidnaps a girl and he mails body parts back to their family in a little white box tied with a black string um so he gets he gets hit by a city bus walking to a mailbox with one of those boxes in his hand. Um, so the police have him. They know he's dead, um, but he's got no identifying information on him. There's no ID or anything like that. Um, they know that he just kidnapped another girl because he was about to mail that box, and they know that she's still alive because of what he's done to his, his previous victims. Um, but they don't know where she is or who she is. Um, you know, so like to me, that was an original take on the serial killer model. And I, I wouldn't have written a book in that, that world unless I knew I could do that. Um, so my Haunted House book is very similar to that. It's, it's something very different that hasn't been done yet. And who doesn't like a Haunted House story? You know, you, you got to love them. Yeah. 
Well, I know I know you're in a tight schedule. You got five more minutes to play my little game, uh, rapid fire questions. Absolutely. Okay, cool. What's your favorite source of inspiration for your stories? You know, how you find them is probably the best way to say it. Ooh, geez, um, probably just life. I mean, I, when I sit down and say, okay, time to come up with an idea, it never happens. Um, it's always when I'm in line at the grocery store, when I'm out, you know, playing with my daughter, when I'm doing something totally different, that's when the ideas pop into my head. Um, so if you're an aspiring author, and the, the trick is to keep your eyes and ears open. You know, those ideas are, are everywhere. You can find them in the newspapers. You can find them talking to your neighbors. Um, visit an old folks home and talk to somebody. and You'd be surprised what type of backstories they've got. Um, a lot of people just don't take the time to do that. Um, but stories are everywhere. And get, getting ideas is the easy part. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think listening is probably the biggest key, one of those biggest keys. I used to go to uh, coffee shops and sit down and I'd be working on something, but I would start eavesdropping and uh, I'd pick up more ideas just listening to the couple next to me. What's harder for you, J.D.? Is it uh, draft one or draft two or the final polish? I don't necessarily do different drafts. Um, I, I, I've gotten to know Dean Koontz really well, and he, he taught me what his process was, um, which is essentially he sits down in the morning and he rewrites whatever he wrote the previous day, and he cleans that up and polishes it. Um, and then you, know, you just kind of keep going when you hit that, that last sentence. So I've been doing that for a number of years now. Um, so usually by the time I finish up that, that first draft, it's, it's pretty tight, um, aside from having to go back and you know, drop a couple of those sentences here or there to, you know, like foreshadowing type stuff for things that happen later. Um, but I, I haven't had a book where I've had to do like a full on rewrite multiple drafts in a really long time. That's, that's great advice. On the flip side, what would you say is your favorite part of the process? That sounds really general and broad, but everybody's got one little piece of the process who write on a consistent basis that they go, oh, this is one of my favorite things, whether it's research or creating characters or the bad guy's name or what's yours? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's probably creating the characters um, and just getting them to the point where they feel like real people to me. Um, you know, Sam Porter in the 4MK series, I, I, I could drop him at the entrance to Disney World and I could tell you what ride he's going to go on first. You know, it's got nothing to do with any of the books. It'll never appear in one, but I know him well enough as a person to be able to do that. Um, so to me, that that's that's the funnest part, fleshing those people out, taking, you know, somebody that doesn't exist and, you know, creating them out of thin air. Brilliant. You seem like a guy, J.D., that uh, is destined for TV and, and or film. And if you had a chance to, we can call it executive produce, you find the pieces to pull together or you're the director of one of your, let's just say one of your current projects, which would do you like if you right now could someone snap a finger and said, let's go make it. Uh, which one of your projects would you choose to produce into a TV series or, or a film? And do you have an idea of who you would like to play your hero in that particular story. Oh, geez. Um, so I've been very lucky when it comes to all that. Everything that I've written has been optioned um, with oh. the exception of Forsaken. Um, that's the only one that's still on the table. And, and honestly, it's, it's funny because it's the Stephen, Con Stephen King tie-in that's holding it up. Um, you know, that helps sell a lot of books in the beginning. But, you know, when lawyers get a hold of that, they're like, well, how do we do that without getting in trouble? And like, who do we have to get permission from? Um, so it tends to turn off a lot of the, the players in Hollywood. They just they don't want the headache. Um, but aside from that, you know, like every Everything else has been optioned. I've got a couple TV shows in the works, a couple of movies in the works. Um, the, the dynamic is constantly changing. I'm constantly getting phone calls saying this person just signed on. And then a week later, I'm getting another phone call saying this person just signed off. Um, you know, so from my standpoint, until I've got my butt in a theater seat eating a box of popcorn, I don't know what's going to actually happen. <laughs> 
Okay. Then that will, we can sidestep the second part of that question if you'd like. Um, Final question. My wife and I have invited you and your wife, Dana, to our San Diego home for dinner. And you're welcome to bring two extra guests. They can be living or dead. And who would they be and why? Hmm. Um... Two extra guests. Well, you like toddlers? I would probably bring our four-year-old because we have a lot of trouble getting a babysitter. <laughs> so, so that would be one. Okay. Um, yeah, probably my. I've got one friend that's kind of stuck with me, you know, throughout my entire life, um, you know, from high school on. Um, probably, probably him. His name's Ron. He's a, a truck driver. Tri- uh, can't talk anymore. A truck driver down in Florida for a grocery chain. Okay. (laughs) That's certainly one of the most original answers yet. All right, folks, to learn more about J.D. Barker, it's going to be an easy website to uh, understand, jdbarker.com. And uh, Twitter, it's a little more difficult. It's at J.D. Barker. Thank you so much for this. This has been just astounding information. Uh, you got great energy. I'm very, very grateful for you taking the time. I know you're a busy man, but uh, thank you, J.D. Oh, I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Thank you, J.D. We will keep our eyes open for what you have coming next. Now, folks, on Monday's special edition Thriller Zone, we're going to take a stroll off the standard path as we meet two L.A. creatives who are merging two of my favorite medium, graphic novels and podcast. Join me this coming Monday, the 31st, for episode 44, as we have Todd and Scotty from For Blood or Justice. Join me on The Thriller Zone. The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.